I think if I could name one of my favorite things about Christmas and about this whole season, it would be seeing it through the eyes of kids. Do you feel that way? Kids, as they enter this season, it's just, it's, it's, it's not too big of a thing to say that for them, Christmas is absolutely magical. Uh, you can just see it in their eyes, the wonder in their eyes. Yesterday, my wife and I had to comfort our daughter because she realized that we weren't opening presents yesterday, and it was just tragic, you know, the waiting. No matter what they're going through at school or with their friends or, or whether they're not doing well in Fortnite, whatever is going on, Christmas seems to pull them out, doesn't it? And they just live with this sense of wonder. But it seems that as we get older... It's tough to hold on to that sense of wonder, that sense of, of kind of magic around the Christmas season. At least if you're anything like me, that's the case. And in some ways, I think that's pretty understandable. You know, as we get older, we start to become aware of the pain and the struggle that, that is present in our world. It's hard to, to feel a whole lot of wonder around this time if you have friends or family members that are just struggling with sicknesses, with illness. Perhaps you have friends, or maybe even you are struggling with, are you in the right job, or, or maybe you've lost your job. And in the midst of a context like that, I think it'd be perfectly safe for, for someone to say, you know, it's hard for me to stir up that feeling right now. And as much as, as Lexus wants to make me feel like a shiny Lexus out front with a red bow is going to solve that, I need something more. I need, I need a hope that is bigger than that, that's deeper than that. If my head is going to be lifted up, I need something deeper and stronger to do it. And the good news is that's precisely what's been offered to us. This morning, we've, we've been singing these songs about Jesus as King. Megan read from the book, from the, the children's storybook Bible, about Jesus being the King. And all of our songs have been focused on that. We want to continue that reflection this morning as we open the scriptures. Our scripture is a short one this morning. It's Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. It's one you're going to be familiar with because of that wonderful song in Handel's Messiah. I'm not going to sing it for you, okay? Maybe next hour, but not right now. And kids, you have their, your coloring book. It's the verse that's in the front of your coloring book as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Starting here in verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now if you have handle going through your head, it's a little more kind of old language, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is a birth announcement, essentially. And birth announcements have become pretty big these days, haven't they? You see them all over YouTube or Twitter, right? These, these birth announcements, they go wrong. And this is a pretty big birth announcement. And the reason it's so important, the reason it's so big, is because of the context within which it was spoken. See, this birth announcement was taking place uh, at a time in Israel's history where their, their situation was so dire, I think it'd be hard for us to even comprehend how difficult things were. So let me give you a little bit of context. Isaiah was prophesying around 730 BC. It's a long time ago. 
And at that time, the glory years of Israel with David and Solomon and the kingdom that was so magnificent, those things were now in the rearview mirror. The kingdom was diminishing. In fact, the kingdom was now split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Two kingdoms, two thrones, two kings. And if that wasn't bad enough, these kingdoms were in conflict with one another. Essentially a civil war that was taking place. Now, if that's not bad enough for the people of God, there was another thing that was happening. There was an empire that was on the rise up north of the northern kingdom, and it was the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were some bad people. This was a nightmare nation that was growing. As I read commentators, they compared the Assyrians to World War II's Nazis or to modern-day ISIS. These are people you don't want to see moving in next door. And when Assyria comes in, or when a nation like Assyria comes in, if you're a smaller nation, the situation you're kind of faced with is we have two choices. We either subjugate ourselves to them, or we fight and we probably face destruction. And so to say that Isaiah, as he spoke, was speaking to a people that were living in an incredibly precarious situation would be an understatement. The Israelites were in a desperate place. Now, what they did not know is that this prophecy would find its fulfillment 700 years later. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? We can't even imagine that. Our country is just not even half that old. 700 years later. This, of course, is a, is a prophecy ultimately about Jesus, about the Messiah, about the one that God was going to send. And as, as much as we like to think about the scene of Jesus' birth as being kind of quaint, and pastoral and calm, the reality is that Jesus was born into a world of great conflict as well. Israel in Jesus' day was, was being ruled by a different tyrant. Assyria was long gone, but now Rome was on the rise. And the Roman Empire was a rough empire. Right? They would crucify people by the thousands in a single day. This was a bad empire. And over Israel, they had placed a tyrant king. They had placed Herod. We know about Herod from the birth story of Jesus. And Herod was a bad guy. He was a bad king, murderous. The rumor about Herod was that you would rather be one of Herod's pigs than be his son because he had a tendency to assassinate his sons because they were a threat to his throne. It's a bad guy. Of course, we see his character come out because we know that after Jesus was born, Herod ordered the death of every child under the age of two, every boy under the age of two, in the area of Bethlehem. So in the context of a people that are living in the shadow of a tyrannical nation, we have a birth announcement. And then we have a birth brought forth under the shadow of a tyrant and murderous king. So what is it about the one that's going to be born that gives people in these circumstances, in this type of distress, hope. And the fact is, this is no ordinary child that's going to be born. Let's continue in verse 6, the second part of verse 6. Continues, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, there it is. That's a promise. The government will rest on his shoulders. Now, if you're a people who have a government that over, overrule them, a government that reigns over them that is tyrannical, that is horrible, 
Does this bring you some hope? And the answer is yes, absolutely it does. This is essentially poetic language to say that kingdoms, rulers, empires, ultimately they will report to him. He will be the authority over them. But not just them. Our hopes and our fears, all the trouble we face in life, he will be the one upon whose shoulders we will place that burden. That's what this child will be. Now today, around the world, this weekend, there are Christians gathering throughout the world that are living in a context where the government that they sit under is a tyrant, is antagonistic to their faith. And if they read this verse, Isaiah 9, 6, the government will be on Jesus' shoulders. Do you think that brings them hope? The answer is, of course it would. Imagine a, a Christian in North Korea or a Christian in Pakistan, Christian in Sudan, hearing this and thinking, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness the government answers to Jesus. What hope? What hope that would bring? But as Americans, I think we face a different challenge. We don't really have a, a government that is tyrannical. Some of you might think so, but that's not our situation. I think our temptation is different. I think there are times where we place all our hope on the government. Tell me the election year and I can tell you who I think 50% of the population place their hope on and who the other 50% place their hope on. And we put our hopes for the future on the shoulders of someone that can't bear the burden. But to proclaim what we are this morning, to proclaim that Jesus is the king, is to say that ultimately we are allegiant to him. We're allegiant to his kingdom. He's the king. He's the final authority. And it's a dangerous thing to say. Throughout history, it's been an incredibly dangerous thing to say that Jesus is king. It got the, the original believers in, 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 in the first century in a lot of trouble because Rome doesn't like that. To say that Jesus is king implies that whoever is king ultimately is not the king. It's to say that presidents, the Congress, kingdoms, prime ministers, they answer to him. That's what it means when we say Jesus is king. It's a dangerous thing to say. Now the good news for us is that this is a king who can shoulder the burden. He can handle whatever it is we're facing. He can shoulder the burden of overseeing the whole world. He's the king. Now, why is it that he's so trustworthy? Why is it that he can shoulder the burden? Let's continue in verse 6. End of verse 6. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So why should Jesus' inauguration as the king bring us a great sigh of relief? Well, it's because of the character of the king. It's because of who he is. What we have here is a series of, of kind of royal titles, but not just royal titles, divine titles as well, kind of put together. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Biblically, the only person who's really wonderful is Yahweh, is God. Wonderful in wisdom, perfect in wisdom. Paul says about Jesus that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But our counselor, the one who guides us, the one who by his word leads us into truth, 
the one who shows us, who shows us the way to go. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Our mighty God. Mighty, it's a warrior term, right? Our, our mighty God who fights our battles for us. The one who defends us. Throughout the Psalms, you see God being the defender. He's the rock in whom we trust. He's our mighty God. So mighty, in fact, that the world was brought into being by his word. All things, seen and unseen, were created by him and by the word of his power. He's our mighty God. That's who Jesus is. Eternal Father. This one can be a little confusing because, of course, we think of God the Father. But this is, again, it's poetic language just saying that Jesus is eternal. He's the eternal one, always has been, always will be. But also eternal in that he'll never diminish, he'll never decay, he'll never see any of those things that, that we who are not eternal will without him. Our eternal Father, he guides us and shepherds us like a father, caring for his children. That's who Jesus is. Finally, he's our Prince of Peace. Of course, ultimately, our peace with God was secured by him, right? Through the blood of his cross. But this is saying more than that. He also is the Prince of Peace that will finally and ultimately usher in the end of wars, the end of conflict, the end of struggle. He's the Prince of Peace. This is the character of the King that we worship character of the king that we proclaim this morning. We've already heard a little bit about what it's going to be like. The government will be on his shoulders. But Isaiah continues in verse 7 and tells us, what will the outcome be of his reign? Verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What will it be like when the king who is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, eternal father, what will it be like when he's the one on the throne? Pretty good. It'll be pretty good. Put the best chef in the kitchen, right? The eating's good. Put a king like this on the throne and the kingdom is really good. Now this phrase doesn't just tell us about the length of his reign forever and ever. It also tells us about the quality. An ever-increasing measure of peace and justice and righteousness. That's what we long for, isn't it? And what will bring it about? It says the zeal of the God of hosts. The zeal of the God of hosts. The jealousy of God will bring this about. Jealous for his name, certainly, but also jealous for us. He's jealous for his people. This is a promise that that is what God will bring about for his people. Now, if you're Israel living in Isaiah's day, and the monster is on your doorstep, Does this bring you a measure of hope? And the answer is, of course it does. Israel knew what they were facing with Assyria rising. They were facing a future of wickedness and evil and conflict and war, suffering, ultimately deportation, right? When Assyria invades, deportation and exile. 
And they longed for a king to come that would sit on David's throne and would rule and bring about the peace and the justice and the righteousness that the people of God longed to live in. And ultimately what they longed for is God to come in and rescue them, to do what only he could, deliver them from all the evil that surrounds them, from all the the horrible and distressing circumstances they found themselves in. So bring a great deal of hope. Now fast forward 700 years. If you are a Jew living in Israel around the time of Jesus, and you're living in the shadow of the murderous tyrant Herod, would you still be reading this verse, Isaiah 9, 7, and thinking, oh, I long for that. I long to see that day. And the answer is, of course you would. You'd be clinging to it. But as I was preparing this text, here was the interesting twist for me. Are we all that different? 2,700 years ago, this prophecy was given. 2,000 years ago, the king arrived who was to fulfill it. And yet I read verse 7. And longing is stirred up in my heart and I think, I want that. I want a kingdom like that. I'd say if you don't feel some of that as you read this passage, my question would be, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to what's happening in our world, in the lives of your friends and your neighbors? See, we live in this interesting place. We live in this moment of tension where, where this, this morning we, we await Christmas morning, and we await the remembrance of the birth of the king. 2,000 years ago, God, out of love, sent his son into the world. And he launched the beginning of the end of death and destruction and decay and suffering. And on Christmas morning, we'll gather together. Even this morning, we gather together and we, we commemorate that moment and we remember that moment and we are thankful for that moment. And that's exactly as it should be. Because the king of the world came. And so we're so thankful for that. But the truth is, on Thursday morning, on the 26th, even though the waiting for the presence will be over, will we still be awaiting people? Will we still be a people with a longing for something more? And the truth is, absolutely, we will. These last four weeks, we've been talking about Advent, and this marks the last Sunday of Advent. Advent, that term, literally means coming. Coming. And the interesting thing when you start getting into it, I don't want to get too technical, but, but the interesting thing is it never it was intended to refer to Jesus' coming in Bethlehem. It was always intended to refer to his second coming, his reappearing, his coming to bring his kingdom in fullness. And so we are people that celebrate the birth of the king. And then day by day, we live as kingdom people. But ultimately, we're a people that are awaiting the return of the king. Or we're awaiting that future day when all the things promised in Isaiah will finally be done. And so we're awaiting people. As I began, I asked about the gloom that sometimes starts to set in, for lack of a better word, over over those of us as, as we enter the Christmas season. 
And I ask, is there a hope? Is there something that can pull us out, that can give us hope in the midst of the circumstances that we live in day to day? And the biblical answer is absolutely. It's this. It's the coming of the current and future king to reign in goodness over his people. That's where we place our hope. It's important for us to stop from time to time and and get anchored on this truth. Because it's so easy to get confused. Even as we enter Christmas, it's easy for me to get confused because I say, okay, the king arrived. And yet, horrible things keep happening. What do I do with that? How do I make sense of that? In the past two weeks, we've had a, a friend, a longtime pastor that we were, we were with and when we lived in Omaha. And, and his body, we just found out, is just riddled with cancer. And we say, Lord, what, uh, we want the peace, the righteousness, the end of death. What do we do with this, Lord? Maybe you're like me. I'd say 2019 is one of the worst years of my life. This past year is the year that, that my father died unexpectedly. And I'd say I've become acquainted this year with, with grief like I've never known before. In the midst of that, I say, Lord, how long? I read Isaiah 9, 7. I say, Lord, I want that. How long must we wait? And so what do we do? What do we do when we announce a kingdom of goodness and righteousness and yet we look around and it seems like death is winning? This is a problem that I think Jesus' disciples were struggling with. As Jesus was coming and announcing the kingdom of God, they were sitting in the shadow of Rome that didn't let people announce those kind of things. And so they had these conversations with Jesus about that. And Jesus, as he always did, answered in in parables. And so Jesus addressed this concern with his disciples in Mark 4. Listen to this short parable, Mark 4, 30 to 32. Jesus says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In other words, the kingdom of God is a growing kind of thing. Oh, there will be a day where it will be obvious and large and unavoidable. That day is coming. There will be a day when Jesus as king will be known to all, but we're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. And we await that day. It reminds me of that scene that's in every family road trip movie, right? Where the kids are just pestering the parents and saying, are we there yet? And of course the parents say, no, we're not there yet. Yet, as I was thinking about this tension of this contrast, uh, uh, an interesting, uh, surprising image came to mind. It was a Bob Ross. Do you guys know Bob Ross? Right? The happiest landscape painter that's ever lived. Afro, head-to-toe polyester. Started thinking about Bob Ross. And growing up when I did, if you were about my age, you used to have to work to waste time. 
And so, you know, you do this thing called channel surfing where you just be flipping through all the channels and inevitably you would roll by PBS and there would be Bob painting. And I, you, don't, you don't know how he did it, but by some magic he would pull you in and you'd just be stuck watching him paint a tree. <laughs> Not just any tree, a happy little tree, right? Painting a mountain range. No, well, there's a little stream, a babbling brook. And Bob would be painting and you'd just get caught up in it. And before you knew it, 17 minutes had passed. Right? And the show was 30 minutes. So you thought, well, I might as well just stick around. <laughs> See how he finishes. But then something would happen around the 22-minute mark, something like that, where you'd be really pleased with what Bob was doing. And then all of a sudden, he'd do something that would just bother the... He would just bother me to death. I just, well, Bob, why did you put that tree there? It's not happy enough. It's in the wrong spot. Or he'd put a mountain range where I didn't feel like it belonged. Or he'd put a, a little rustic cabin down by a babbling brook. And I'd think, I just think, you just ruined it. You just ruined it. But by minute 30, what would Bob do always? He'd pull it out, wouldn't he? He'd pull it out. I was the novice and I was critiquing him, but by the end of the show, by the end of the painting, he'd pull it all together. And in the end, the painting would be just the way it was supposed to be. And I'd look at it and say, well, that's just right. I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. The artist pulls it out in the end. But in the middle, boy, it was confusing. I thought he had lost it. I thought he had lost it. Church, in the end, our God is going to bring it all together. And the painting, the picture when we step back is going to come into clear focus and we're going to see the end and it's going to be just the way it's supposed to be. But right now we're in the middle. We're just not there yet. And it can get a little confusing, but the day is coming and we await that day. We're just not there yet. This weekend and in the next few days, we look forward to Christmas. We look forward to the arrival of our king and we will wonder at that day. We will read the story of his birth. We will praise God for what he did in Christ because God became flesh and he dwelled among us. God with us. What an astounding statement. Emmanuel. And in coming and being with us in his life and his death and his resurrection, he brought life to us. And just last weekend, people gathered up here and offered their life to him. And so in the coming days, we will celebrate that. We will commemorate that. We will remember that. We will praise God for that. And that's just the way it should be. And then after that, we will remain awaiting people in a posture of waiting. We're a kingdom people that are awaiting the arrival of the king. And as kingdom people, we live now in the kingdom that is coming. We live in the peace that is brought by Jesus and by the cross. We live now in the righteousness that he leads us into. We give allegiance to him and him alone, submitting our life to him and his kingdom. And we long for that day when rulers of the earth will no longer be able to hide from the fact that Jesus 
is the king. The day when, when that kingdom will be fully culminated, will be fully visible. And that's the moment we await. The culmination, the pinnacle, the great revealing of what is, right? That Jesus is king in splendor and glory and his throne will be before all people. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the king. And peace and righteousness and justice will rule the day. That is the day that we long for. That is the day that we await as kingdom people. We await that day. This weekend, we turn our attention to Jesus, to Jesus the King who came and bought victory for us, the one who rules now on his throne and the one who will rule forever and ever. As the New Testament closes, in the book of Revelation God opened up for John, who, who saw this vision, what the future looks like. And he gave John a glimpse of it. And I want to close with this from Revelation 21. This is the day that we await. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And as the book of Revelation draws to a close, Jesus says this to John. He says, surely I am coming soon. And John responds in the way that I think is only appropriate. It's the way we respond as kingdom people now. John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. And so what do we do? Well, we join with the angels. We join with the angels and we sing praise to his name. And we await his coming and we live as his people. And we look forward and we place our hope in that future day when all things will be made right. Will you join me in prayer? <clears throat> our Father, we praise you that, that, on that on that night long ago, You sent your son in the flesh to live among us and ultimately to purchase us by the blood of the cross. And we praise you for that. And we praise you, Jesus, because you are the king and we are your people. And we surrender to you and we thank you. We get to be part of your kingdom right now. And we await that day, Lord. We await that day when all things will be made new. A day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And we thank you and praise you this morning. Amen.